This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Uh, I hope you had fun. It's a great film. I mean, the cat always gets me at the end. Uh, and uh, it, it is uh, fantastic. And uh, now I can't... Uh, I can never lose my train of thought without thinking about this film. Every time I forget something, I think, oh, the train is derailing. That's it, right? That's the idea. So here I am with two uh, our distinguished guests. Um, and uh, we start with uh, Decker Keltner, who uh, is a UCSB alumnus, which is terrific. Right? Thank you. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Yes, and uh, of course studied in Paris, and the Sorbonne, then went to uh, get a doctorate from Stanford, and uh, uh, was an assistant professor in Wisconsin and then Berkeley, and now he's a professor at Berkeley at UCSB. Um, he's in the executive committee of the Bay Area Consortium on Training in Effective Science. And uh, you'll see from uh, the few little snippets of his, uh, of his uh, background, I mean, that he has always been concerned with the idea of uh, the way in which science and feelings and emotions are kind of uh, uh, affecting each other. So in this case, he has also been director of the Berkeley Center for Peace and Well-Being, uh, and his research focuses on emotions and social interactions, on culture, morality and emotions, conflict and negotiation, uh, race and friendship, personality, psychopathology and emotion, power and social perception, and so on. And he has contributed to or written over a uh, hundred articles, and as well as two uh, books, which have been uh, which have been widely used. Um, his books include uh, social psychology and understanding emotions. So it is with this kind of stellar background that he comes to talk about this film, right? I mean, that's, uh, of course, uh, is, is uh, quite appropriate uh, because he was a consultant on uh, the film about, about the motion. Um, and our other distinguished guest here is, and again, I have my cheese sheet here, um, he is David Sherman, who is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at UCSB. He is a member of the Executive uh, Council at the uh, uh, SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind, and he will explain a little bit later about what this is about. He, uh, he is a uh, social and health psychologist and uh, uh, kind of focuses on how people cope with uh, threatening events and uh, information. And uh, he is president of the International Society for Self and Identity. And his research focuses on the role of self in response to stressful event and uh, uh, on uh, intergroup uh, pol polarization. Um, so these uh, two uh, uh, people who are, you know, so incredibly generous to donate their time and to help us understand how the film came about. So I'm going to yield uh, to you, and, uh, uh, and uh, you are going to also present some questions. Yes. So uh, welcome back, uh, Dacker. It's um, good to be back. 
uh, last uh, last spring we uh, featured Dacker is the uh, uh, alumni in the psych, psych department newsletter, and we were talking about the film, and uh, Dacker said, you know what would be really fun is if we could screen the film and talk about it here at UCSB while I'm visiting. And so, uh, so I want to uh, thank the Sage Center uh, for, and the, the Pollock Theater for be, putting this together um, and thank Dacker for suggesting this. And I think just seeing everyone enjoy the film so much, and uh, it, was, it was really uh, terrific. The Sage Center uh, for the Study of Mind um, is an interdisciplinary center. Um, and tomorrow, Dacker will be giving the, his scientific lecture um, the lecture is titled On Awe in the Evolution of the Sublime. Um, that'll be tomorrow uh, at 4 p.m. And I encourage you to check out the Sage Center uh, webpage to see all the distinguished uh, researchers uh, from many different fields who come here to UCSB, present lectures that are open to the community. And so I'd like to just uh, begin by asking you, uh, how did you get involved in Inside Out? Um, and what were some of the psychological insights that you wanted to bring to uh, the movie? Yeah, so um, I had uh, been on a panel with Pete Docter, who's the director, and his, his movie prior to Inside Out was up. And it, uh, Pete um, actually moved from Minnesota uh, early in his life. He grew up in Minnesota, and so that was a very bi- biographical fact. And then he, like myself, um, was grappling with, he had an 11-year-old girl. A uh, daughter named Ellie, whose voice had been in another movie, and he was noticing what we what we know in psych- psychology, which is that when you're 11 or 12 as a, a, a young girl, you're, a 10 year old girl is about as happy as humanly possible, and the data show this out. And then a 12 year old girl is about as unhappy as a human can possibly be. Uh, and Pete uh, wanted to make a movie about that, and so he called, he uh, he and I had been on a panel together to talk about how you animate expression and how you take inanimate objects like a Pixar light and you make it expressive because uh, I study human emotional expression. So he calls me up and he's like, hey, Dacker, this is Pete Doctor. I'm like, hey, Pete, how's it going? You know, and he's like, and I want to make a movie. And I, and I was like, I'm ready. I got some drawings and you know, I'd love to sort of contribute. And he's like, no, I, it's, it's about emotion. Uh, and I'm like, great. You know, no one's ever, I, I mean, I think Anna will have some her own opinions about who's tackled emotion in the mind. But he said, and I'd really like to make a movie about emotion that shows how emotions guide thought patterns inside and then how they structure your social lives, which is really, I think, the centerpiece of the science of emotion. And I was like, Pete, you know, this is going to be revolutionary, a lot of science to talk about. And he said, uh, and I want to do it on a, about an 11-year-old girl. And at the time, I had an 11-year-old girl who was heading into crises. And I was like, Pete, I'll talk to you in five years. Uh, and, and so he... Uh, that's where it began. And when Pixar makes movies, there are five or six main directors. Pete's a director. And then they work for a year or two just with a couple of collaborators. So Ronnie Del Carmen, who's from the Philippines, was his kind of right-hand man. And then Josh Cooley came in. Uh, And they start with drawings and dialogue for a year or two, and they work on their own. And so it really began at that moment where he was just like, what do we know scientifically? And he, in part, I became um, kind of this scientific conduit. I would talk about findings and ideas that we've learned from the science of emotion. What were some of the first uh, questions that, that he was asking you about emotions? Yeah, so, you know, and it was such an interesting lesson because science and art 
as you know, and our, our complementary and then distinct enterprises. So uh, I visited Pixar and gave a couple of uh, talks on expression and emotion and memory and so forth. And the first question he's asked is, you know, well, how many are there? And I was like, well, there are probably about 15 or 20 emotions, the scientific literature suggests. And I pitched him hard on, you know, so I think you really need a character on awe and embarrassment and laughter and mirth and love. Uh, and he quickly was like, nah, you know, it's only going to be five. I'm like, oh, Pete, you're, you're doing a disservice to the science. He's like, you know, there were not, you know, 20 Snow, Snow White's dwarves. There are five for narrative purposes, right? So you can't have too many characters. Uh, and that was his first question, is like, how many emotions are there? Uh, then he got really interested in the emotions of an 11-year-old girl, um, which is fundamental. Um, and, uh, and then it really started from there. So joy is the first emotion that pops out on the screen. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about developmentally what we know about emotions, the emergence of emotions, um, and why the emotions... Uh, was there any meaning to the order in which they appeared uh, in the movie that kind of has basis in science? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, so, you know, I, I would go to Pixar and meet with their small team, and one of the first themes that we talked about, and I think this is really true in the field, the scientific literature on emotion, is that you are your emotions. Your identity is intertwined with your emotions. And, and we know from developmental psychologists uh, like Jerome Kagan and people who have followed that, you know, given your family background and your family structure, but also your genetic tendencies, uh, you start early in life, and the film makes the case from the first waking moment with an emotional profile, right? So some of us are fearful, some of us are exuberant and joyful, and they drew upon that science of the, the genetics of human emotion and the genetics of what we call temperament to make the case that joy is the organizing emotion of, of her identity. And I think um, there are a lot of good data that speak to that idea that you know, there are going to be uh, calm, peaceful kids because of their early biological temperament and it's gonna shape how they look at the world and, and so they wanted joy to be this central character. And that, that always intrigued me about this film since the first time I saw it. What about the body types, right? I mean, uh, yeah. why? Uh, first of all, what is how is joy different from happiness? What would you, what would be the body type of happiness as opposed to joy? Because joy at the beginning and uh, during the first act, she's insufferable. She's yeah. this kind of jumping around thing that Frenetic, you know. Yeah. She's trying to cheer everybody up compulsively, right? And, right. and that, that that is that is impossible. Uh, and of course, Amy Poehler. I mean, that's that's a great you know voice that that we hear. But uh, why would joy be kind of normal type and shoeless, while while sadness is kind of chubby, short? Has dorky shoes and uh, and, and is yeah. blue and pathetic and yeah. of course is lovable and squeezable and, 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 is, yeah. and, and is voiced by a great actress who plays the pathetic you know yeah. played pathetic yeah. roles in in the office and cetera right and then and then and it was have... interesting they had trouble finding the voice for sadness and the producer Jonas uh, Rivera was watching the office and he's like oh I found her you know so. <laughs> 
Uh, exactly. And it was a hard right? voice to find. Exactly, yeah. right? And even I think they try to, uh, she inspires the glasses maybe from the character, not from her real life. Yeah. Right? Because I've seen her in pictures without glasses, yeah. but in the office she always has these dorky glasses, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and then uh, the, uh, you know, disgust is, is, is this kind of what? Valley girl. <laughs> look from the 80s or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. And of course, this this pathetic little fear. Yeah. <laughs> and a, right. the best casting, of course, is rage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting because they, they drew upon both art and science to, to sort of create the visual look of the characters. And so uh, the art was they literally, and in the abstract, the period of abstract thought, is where the drawings began, and um, they have a wonderful book on Inside Out, and I got to see the museum yeah. exhibit, where they literally began with geometric shapes and colors that reminded them of the emotions, right? So sad is blue, fear is kind of angular and you know, edgy and purple, um, uh, anger is obviously red. So, so they began artistically with intuition, mm-hmm. And then those morphed into um, characters, right? Human characters. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, the, uh, the, some of the characters really changed. So disgust began as a really disgusting looking person with warts and you know, mucus all over her face. And, and everyone was like, ooh, this is going to turn people off. So uh, she became the Valley Girl type of disgust, <laughs> uh, as you say. And, and then I think that they chose the... They, the um, the construction of the, the look of the characters was also um, guided by science and cultivating a certain response in the audience. So I think, very importantly, sadness had this evocative feel of, you know, you wanting to embrace her, and she was charming in some way, and you felt you wanted to approach her, which was an important decision. Ang- anger had all, all the temperature rising of, of what we know about the physiology of anger. And they were really interested in things like the skin, and if you notice in the film, the skin is kind of luminous and it's porous, and they felt like that was sort of like cells in the brain, and they were modeling it upon a little mm. bit of neuroscience. So it was this really cool mixture of early art, a little bit of science, and then what they wanted the audience to, how they wanted the audience to respond to the characters. And they wanted all the emotions to be lovable, which I think is a very important position. Sadness is very lovable. Uh, although we often medicate sadness uh, and pathologize it. Uh, anger was hysterical. Even fear was lovable. So they wanted to kind of have that Pixar touch to them. And, and the emotions work together. So yeah. joy and sadness obviously work together. Yeah. Um, how, do, what, how does this reflect it in the science of emotion? How do emotions interact and lead to different outcomes than from kind of a, a single emotion? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, you know, it, it's, uh, we know scientifically, uh, you know, the emotions start out fairly pure, if you will, if you really look at them. And then we know as you get older, you know, in particular in the second half of life, although this is about a child, the emotions start to mix more, more frequently. And so you have these more complicated mixtures. So I imagine in the sequel, which will not be his next film, but in... <laughs> A couple films, they'll they'll start to mix in complicated ways, uh, and we uh, I think an important position of the film is the idea that emotions do things for the, the human organism, and that'll be a very lasting contribution of the film. That fear, 
alerts you to danger, sadness, brings about reunions, which is so fundamental to the narrative. Uh, and then the question of how they, what they do when they mix with other emotions. I think you saw it with the memories, which is really a very powerful position of joy and sadness, sort of mixing in transforming the content of memories, which is true that memories shift with, with the mixture of emotions. Uh, so I think, uh, I think we'll really learn what Pixar believes about mixtures of emotions in the next film. Um, I was wondering, did you do, you were there to help them prep for the film, but did you do any preparatory work yourself? Did you go back and watch Pixar films or yeah. something? Because, because a doctor already has a very keen sense of the emotional life of his characters. I mean, yeah. he's Pixar, so some of my favorites. I mean, yeah. Up is, yeah. is an incredible film. Yeah. Uh, so did you, did you watch uh, Hayao Miyazaki, for instance, yeah. which is one of his, of his inspirations? Yeah. Um, so the, um, I did watch... Um, the, what they like to do creatively, and it, it, in, for those of you who are studying the social sciences, this is a, a great opportunity in your careers, which is that we have this science-based wisdom. We've learned some things. And they, they didn't want, you know, and it actually caught me by surprise. Like, I had these opinions about the colors that the character should have, what colors map to different emotions, and their scientific studies of that, and so forth. But they really wanted broader themes uh, about the right. themes in the movie. Like, what, is, what happens to identity in a young girl uh, when she is moving into puberty or getting close to it? Um, but I, in preparation, did study a lot, of, um, a lot of the Pixar movies. I watched Up a lot, just to, and I talked to Pete a lot about uh, how he constructed scenes in that film, just to be able to sort of sort of shape my advice. Uh, Pete, Anna's asked, Pete is a huge fan of Miyazaki, of Miyazaki who Totoro and um, yep. some of the other. And, the, and in fact, the highlight for Pete, among many in the, doing this film, uh, probably the, the most important moment for the film, bigger than the Academy Award, was getting to show it to Miyazaki and having him uh, appreciate it. Because the Japanese have been critical of Pixar uh, for various reasons. They have a very rich animation tradition. Uh, and he gave it the thumbs up, and that was a big deal. So I watched a lot of the movies. I talked to Pete a lot about the artistic process. And Pixar goes from drawings, and then by the end of the film, they've, got, they've had 250 people work on it. And it goes from hand sketches to complex computer-based animations uh, through a, a very elaborate process that I wanted to get a mm. sense of to see where the science fit in. Good. So it was a, a really humbling exercise. So um, at the end, uh, we see sadness uh, save the day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and then when Riley's yeah. uh, reunited <laughs> with her parents, there's the, the vocal burst. Yeah. Um, and can you talk with us, uh, tell us a little bit about your research on, on vocal burst and, yeah. and how that was kind of illustrated in the movie? Yeah, thank you for asking that, David. Uh, so I, uh, I got to go to the Pixar team, uh, probably took about five, takes Pete five or six years to make a movie. Um, 
and uh, they brought me in a year into the movie, or right from the inception, wow. and then uh, I'd come visit the campus every six months. And I do a lot of research on facial expression, which I think Pixar, they already know how to animate expression. They're better at it than we are, uh, the scientists are. Uh, and then I do a lot of work on vocalizations, right? Uh, and it's this language, if you come to my talk tomorrow, you'll hear about this. Uh, it's a very ancient language of emotional communication that predates the spoken word. And mammals, various mammals and primates have these things called vocal bursts, which are little sounds that you communicate emotion. On the count of three, first of all, I'll give you a sound that, um, that I hear my teenage daughters emit. See if you know what emotion this is. <laughs> And you saw some of it in Riley, right? Yeah. It's like contempt, disgust. Okay, I'm going to count to three, and I want you guys to give me your best sympathy sound. One, two, three. I'm good. I'm glad I'm back at UCSB. Uh, I recently did that at Goldman Sachs, and people are like, uh, that is not a joke. So... So I presented that science to the Pixar team, and I saw them taking notes. And they were like, ooh, the voice has all these little, they only last about a quarter of a second. Now, who heard a vocal burst in the film? What did, where did you hear it? Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, at the very end, when they have the reunion, uh, Riley emits this sigh. And in a way, is the culmination. It's the, it's one of the most important dramatic moments of the film, and I'm crying when I'm watching this. <laughs> That's my science, you know. Uh, and I do think, I think they <laughs> took that very literally and took it to heart, and I'm glad you heard it, because uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good integration of science and art. And, and David said something really important, and, and I'll give you a little backstory uh, that most people don't know. Uh, sadness does win the day. And halfway into the movie, Pixar, you, they have an executive team that has some Disney people and some, and John Lasseter and um, Andrew Stanton and others. And then the directors pitch the film. And they've animated it. They've got a lot of storyboards. They say, this is, now I need $100 million to make this movie or whatever it is. And they, they pitch the film. And Pete pitched it as you saw it. And the executive team didn't want sadness to be the main character. They wanted fear to be the main character, right? Because fear has lots of gags. Do you think it would have been a better movie with fear? No. no. I mean, the crowning achievement is sadness. And Pete literally was going to drop the film. He's like, I will not make this film if, unless we have sadness as the central figure. And, and I was listening to you, how much you responded to the character of sadness. And I think that was the big... Uh, as David put it, sadness wins the day. And, and that was a culture shift in, brought about by art, that our culture now looks at sadness in a different way. Mm. Um, I was reading, speaking of sadness, uh, that uh, um, the three characters that were tacked on at the beginning were hope, envy, and uh, pride. Yeah. And pride was the very last one to be dropped, yeah. right? I mean, they really were holding on for pride. Yeah. Uh, pride, uh, they even had names for them, right? Yeah. I mean, and everything. Uh, there was supposed to be something like uh, Misty and Freddy and so on and so forth <laughs> that would evoke, right, the feeling. Um, 
what about pride? I mean, what about pride for an 11 year old? Yeah, you know, so, so Pixar had other emotions that were going to be part of the movie. Uh, envy would have been a good one for an 11 year old girl. It's a time when you're moving into social hierarchies and very aware of status, so envy was important. Uh, fell by the wayside, hope. Uh, they had an amusement one early that, you know, it didn't make sense, like you have a character that's about laughter that you're laughing at, and so it didn't fit their mm. scheme. And Pride was the last one to go. And Pride had this kind of British accent and was, you know, <laughs> and was, look, you know, it was uh, very stately looking. Uh, and uh, it, they just said, frankly, like, Pride wasn't funny. You know, it was just like, it's kind of boring and offensive, and you got kind of for Pride. And, and uh, so they, they just used that as the criterion. For an 11 year old girl, I mean, Pride, we know a lot about Pride. Um, very, probably like a lot of the self conscious emotions, hits really sort of comes online two or three years old and then mm-hmm. really becomes important in the mm-hmm. early adolescent years. Mm-hmm. Um, very Not static. losing faith, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and they just felt it wasn't entertaining. You know, and so out it goes. Out it goes. <laughs> That's it. Prideless. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the kind of hardcore cognitive aspects of the movie is, is memory. Yeah. And uh, memory is so core to the personality of Riley. Um, And it's affected uh, dramatically by the emotions that she's feeling in the moment. Um, There's a long history of studying mood-congruent memory, how our our present feelings affect what we recall. Um, But what's interesting is how the mood that she's experiencing or the emotions that she's feeling affect her her recall of the same events. Um, So... Could you share a little bit about the interaction between, you know, affect and cognition, mood and memory? Did they ask questions about how those relate, and, and how how did you feel about how it was depicted in the in the film? Yeah, well, you know, sounds like you're almost there. So, um, probably my third visit, uh, it it was really fun. I I go visit, and then at the beginning it was a very small team, and and they sequester the creative teams away in these rooms. Uh, and as the movie was really taking hold, um, and they were sort of making these decisions about how many emotions I visited, and they, they said, you know, well, what about emotion and memory? Right? Um, and it's such an incredible theme. Um, and we know people, scientifically, we know people remember um, uh, emotional things more than non-emotional things. But we also know, and this is where the work uh, by Linda Levine, and Linda, who's at UC Irvine, and her work had a profound influence on that film, which is, um, as David nicely summarized, the, the feelings you have in the moment guide your reconstruction of your memory of the past. And she's right. done really careful work on, along with my collaborator, George Bonanno, um, you know, for example, the more dramatic case is if my partner dies and I feel profound sadness in that moment. And then two years later, I'm feeling joyful, and I have new relationships, and I've entered into this new phase of life, which happens during bereavement. Um, George finds my memory of the past event will, will be more joyful, right? And I'll remember joyous wisdom that I gained in, in bereavement. So the, the present feeling guides what the memory looks like, you know, what you reconstruct it, reconstruct it as. Uh, and they nailed that. 
I feel. I feel it's one of the very important themes is that the sadness of early adolescence, and it's a sad time. I think the movie fundamentally is about loss. Um, re, it sort of changes the color of the memories, the friendships, the scene of the walking on the sidewalk with a friend becomes blue. And I think that's one of the more poignant properties of the film. And Pete, doctor, and also Ronnie Del Carmen, who is his co-director, where their kids were becoming adults. Pete's doctor was going into adolescence. Pete was feeling very sad himself about the loss of childhood. Uh, so that becomes this very critical theme. I think, I think they got that right. I think the, you know, and I don't think we have scientific data on this, that like the, the, the realm of forgetting all the balls that are disappearing. Um, I don't know if we have data on that. It's probably a, an overextension. And it'd be fun. I would say, well, I don't think you can really do that. And they'd be like, we don't care. You know, uh, you know you're, you live in a lab. This is going to be seen by a couple hundred million people. So, uh, and, they, and they would balance that artistic, scientific tension. And that one, they wanted the drama. You know, so, um, but I think they got the idea of mood congruence and present feeling guiding what the past is like really well. And, and I thought also another part of your research, uh, I didn't mention your TED Talk, which uh, I just watched it, <laughs> so I should have mentioned you it. You and my mother, but that's good. I'm glad you're <laughs> No, actually. I my thought, mom hasn't watched it, so. Yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, and I actually thought I would uh, enroll in your MOOC, right, in your online course. And this morning I finally got around to it, and the deadline was yesterday. So, yeah. um, and I, I will be grading your exam. Yes, and I, I, I missed it. Um, but but the, the, what you're saying, I mean, part of your research, I mean, on the fact that uh, the uh, expression of emotion actually constitutes an adaptive, right? Yeah. An adaptive way, an adaptive response to social environments. Yeah. I think that little montage at the end, right, with all the various characters, even the minor ones, the ones that we hadn't considered, uh -huh. the cat, the dog, and everybody else, right? right? It's kind of hinting at that. Yes. Uh, hinting at the idea that this is all about an environment and the emotions are, you know, <laughs> kind yeah. of uh, adaptively uh, creating a connection among all these characters. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you know, you, how many of you feel that emotions are good things to have? So, <laughs> that's a rhetorical question. And by design, because, you know, uh, the science of emotion is young. And it's only literally, uh, you know, when I was in grad school, uh, a few years before David arrived at Stanford, you know, I remember a very important scientist coming by and said, so you're interested in emotions. You can tell who I'm imitating. And uh, emotions are this, aren't they? And he moved his face around, and I'm like, they're a little bit more than weird twitches on your face. Uh, <laughs> and I think the, the central idea of the science of emotion which women typically grasp very quickly, men may never grasp this idea, is they're, they're adaptive in the evolutionary sense, in the cultural sense. They solve problems that are important to navigating your environment. Uh, and the, the science has gradually uh, built up to that idea, and I've been part of this functional analysis of emotions. And the film just, you know, I, I teach this idea in obscurity, a couple hundred people know it. Most forget it after the class. Uh, and the film nailed that, right? All the films have purposes. I mean, the emotions. Sadness has this purpose of reuniting people. 
Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's a reviewer in the Atlantic Monthly who said, um, just as Dante's Inferno was kind of a visualization mm -hmm. of hell, yeah. this film was a visualization of emotion. That changed how we think about it. And most importantly, the emotions are good, right? And that's a, that's a very important lesson for a young girl, uh, for parents to, you know, and I had a guy who I do yoga with who's a, what's called a CIO, Chief Information Officer, a very technical guy. And he's like, God, I saw this movie. My daughter saw it six times. It helped her get through her adolescent years. And so what you're saying is, and he literally started crying. He's like, Sadness is good. I'm like, sadness is good. He's like, oh my god, you know, and and, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of what the movie and the science says is these emotions are here for a reason. Mm -hmm. And and crying. And, yeah. and uh, the two scenes that where Riley cries, you know, in, in her classroom right. uh, in the beginning, um, and then at the end right. with her parents. Nice uh, uh, it's it's a signal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how does, uh, what do we know about the, the signaling function of, of crying? Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the signals, and I've worked on this a lot, you know, scientifically we know these signals are old. They're at least primate. Many of them are mammalian. You know, rats have been shown to laugh when you tickle them. And, uh, and you know, a lot of, the, and that was the Darwinian enterprise. Uh, and that's a finding. Uh, and, and we know from, and I talked about this with the crew, that, you know, that ma parents, infants have different kinds of distress calls. They have food-related distress calls. They have social-related distress calls. They have a, a crying, form of crying that's related to fatigue. Uh, and they have different acoustic parameters. And parents know that. You know, we, once you kind of tr train up a little, you're like, oh, she wants me to get close, or she needs food, or whatever the case may be. So we write about the very evocative power of emotional signals, that the brain is wired to detect these signals and trigger responses uh, in, in perceivers. And, and that, I, you know, this is where Pixar, you, you could have 100 papers, and it would never be the power of Pixar, like the scenes of Riley crying, and then the parents, the reunion, and the embrace, and the aesthetic beauty mm -hmm. of that embrace, and the vocalization mm -hmm. at the end, that's what, how sadness evolved in our uh, primate evolution right there on the scene. So it was powerful. And should we open it up? So I heard people uh, kind of asking, no, yes? You're going to get a microphone. Thanks. Um, so I, I got a lot of the, the metaphors, the physical metaphors, um, but the train in thought one is the one I wasn't too clear on and just sort of the, the randomness of it, like the emotions didn't have any control over it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And it did seem to be just kind of a train of its own is what the, the, you know, the pink character was suggesting. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe could you fill me in a little bit on that one? Yeah, you know, the, it, was, it, was, it was fun uh, about, I would say about two and a half years into the making of the film, they, um, they came in, I came in and they said, well, do you want to see what it's going to look like? 
because up till that point, we'd just been talking in the abstract. So we go to their kind of where they're doing all their creative work, and they had the islands of personality, and they were really interested in the train of thought. And they, you know, and it's a, and, and I agree, you know, there are places where the science would have probably created a different dimension to the film. Uh, and, and I think you're right. I think thought, you see it in Riley that her perception of the environment is guided by emotion. And I think they could have worked um, more assertively to make emotions guide the train of thought. And it felt, I think, I think there are gags that they wanted to have, right? And Pixar very much begins with gags, right? These guys are comedians. Uh, the abstract thought, you know, it's not too clear what that has to do with the narrative. They just want to do that. But actually, that's a great opportunity for uh, the, the artists there, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. to go to the kind of yeah. ont- ontogeny and the phylogeny of, of animation. You just go back to the beginning of art. Yeah. And you just kind of take it all right. the way, right? And that was an artistic scene, much yes. more so than a scientific scene. And I think Train of Thought was too. It was a, they were like, well, you got to have a train of thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> And we're not sure where it works, and they got to ride it, you know, and bing bong, you know. So, uh, so I felt I think your critique is well placed, but we don't make movies, and they do. So, hello. Um, was there a reason that the emotions in the main character were gendered, and the yeah. emotions in everybody else were single gender? Yeah, you know, they uh, they really, you know. I talked a little to them about the gendered nature of emotion. Men get a little bit more angry. Women cry more. Those are findings. Um, and they, um, they, they knew um, that there, there is a serious gender critique of the film. Mm-hmm. Right? That, you know, if you were to do it scientifically, an 11-year-old girl, she's really heading into puberty, they'd be more complex. And they'd probably be androgynous, and you'd have to render that artistically. Uh, they also knew that there were gender stereotypes, as you've anticipated, you know, males, anger, female sadness. Um, and uh, they, um, they felt like the artistic power of having that, those gendered emotions sort of was worth the scientific costs and the cultural costs. And they did get some critique on that, that they are, there are some gender stereotypes involved and you could have had a more nuanced portrayal. So, um, I think it was an artistic decision with a little bit of science behind it. Um, mine, was ba- uh, mine was like, is there a scientific significance of the fact that the emotion, the main emotion for each character was kind of different? Like the fact that Riley was joy, her mom was sadness, her yeah. dad was anger and whatnot? Yeah, I think I, I think it's back to the first question. Like the the idea that they're working with is at different stages in development, and also across development, your identity has certain emotions that are prominent, right? Uh, so Pete is kind of a socially anxious guy, and knew that in his like I am, and knew that in his DNA that fear is kind of at the core of his identity. And, and so they played that out in terms of Riley, as we discussed, with joy, mm-hmm. and then the prominence of, of sadness and anger in the, in the mom and dad uh, was sort of built on that idea that at that stage in development, when you're 
raising a young daughter who's getting into difficulties, um, these emotions may be kind of characteristic ways that you handle life. And so they were working with that notion. As long as you save the memory of a Brazilian pilot, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your anchor. I, I also think it's related to emotions and personality. Yeah. Um, and there's five emotions in the movie. Some people argue that there are five dimensions to personality, and people vary in the extent to which they are high on neuroticism, high on extroversion, yeah. uh, and so on. And so that is the individual differences that make psychology you know, so exciting to study. Um, and that's kind of represented in the different emotional patterns and personalities that you see in the characters. Oh, that's a great point. The sequel will have a brother or something. I can just see it, too. <laughs> Of them. <laughs> and no, the sequel's going to have a boyfriend. Oh, brother. Or, or maybe a girlfriend. Who knows? So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it's going to get interesting. Hi there, and thank you for coming and for everybody sharing uh, their insights. But I kind of help, couldn't help but wonder about script. Was there a script to begin with, or was the first thing of the picture? Was the first thing to picture? Or a script? Well, what they, you know, have you guys visited Pixar? Or it's really worth visiting. Um, Pete and Ronnie, they begin with drawings um, and ideas. And they will work through about 90,000 storyboards uh, to make a film. And so mm. Pete and Ronnie are literally almost, they're drawing around the clock, right? And they're just like, drawing people on BART or, you know, on a bus or what's happening at lunch or something at, at family. Um, and and it, it began with um, Pete watching his 11-year-old daughter. Um, and she started to withdraw, like a lot of 11-year-old girls do, and sort of go inside, get a little bit sad. Not, you know, very, very, there are a lot of Pete touches in the film. He always visit national parks. So the, the trip across the country is very much their family. Uh, and uh, he was struck by that observation, right? That what is going on in a very silent 11-year-old girl who's pulling away, not liking uh, play and laughter and silliness, which is a very, for those, you guys are all, many of you are young, but the parents in the room will remember that very distinctly, that suddenly play is in his... <laughs> part of your repertoire. So it began with an observation of a child. And then Ronnie, Ronnie is the best drawer at Pixar. And he, he's a genius. Uh, and he just starts drawing stuff. And they just started to draw that, that moment, then the emotions, that what, what, how would you represent the mind? Um, and off they went. Good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I was curious about how um, maturity would affect the emotions, because you know, like, like, he, like she wouldn't. You know, when you get older, you you like tend not to cry, because you know, oh, I'm a big yeah. boy now and stuff like that. And as well as that, I wanted to ask about um, what what emotion would you like to put? Like, if you could add one more emotion, which one would you like to put in it? Thank you for asking those questions. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think. Your, que your first question, what happens as you age, will be, and you saw hints of it with the control panel, right, the new control panel, 
Um, that'll be the central question that they grapple with if and when they do their sequel, which I think they will. Um, and, you know, we know as you get older, uh, your emotions become more complicated. There's a whole suite of emotions that come online, uh, kind of the romantic emotions, which Riley was just showing hints of. Um, we know they become more regulated. They become more cerebralized. We think about them. We represent them. We regulate them. Uh, and regulation is not really well portrayed in the film. There's no conscious control of the emotions, really, to speak of. So I think that'll be stuff that they have to grapple with. And uh, if I, you know, for it, you know, to, if I were to add one emotion, I would. Well, I would add. Um, I, I would try to add awe, which I'll be talking about tomorrow. Um, and it's such an important teen emotion. Teenagers, awe is really important to teenagers. Uh, but it'd be, awe is kind of disruptive, kind of shuts everything down and gets you into strange places. And, you know, be, if Riley had an awe trip, that'd be a little strange. But, uh, so I would have added that, that emotion. Or I, I think um, it'd be very interesting to add amusement or mirth, you know, which is a very interesting mental state. Hi, thank you for your fascinating insight on on this very amusing movie. Um, I was kind of caught by the um, the idea that sadness won the sort of final combat, and I'm wondering if you think, like, sort of in tandem to science, if that could almost be sort of a way to validate sadness as an emotion in, in society? Because it, maybe it has a little bit of a stigma as compared to yeah. being happy and, and joyful. And if you had any, any thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, um, when I teach human emotion at Berkeley, we talked about the movie. And, and uh, I said you know, to 400 people, like, what do you guys think of the movie? It was, it was just out. And, uh, and I had this great Berkeley undergrad. And I was talking to David about great thing about the UC, we have a lot of students transferring from community colleges, and they come from very interesting backgrounds. And this undergrad spoke a lot in my class, uh, was a veteran. He had been a homeless. He had pierces all over him. He talked a lot in class. And he's like, he raised his hand right away, and he's like, I was like, well, what do you think, Michael? And he's like, man, that was the darkest movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's it. And I, you know, one of the things that I teach in human emotion is that the, the value and the meaning of emotion changes across cultures, and it changes historically. So in Victorian era, uh, sadness was a much more acceptable emotion. And it was kind of acceptable uh, if you had the means to do this, where you would fall into a state of sadness, you may check out of your, for your life for a day or two or a longer period, and that was kind of accepted as part of the, the, the healthy emotional repertoire. Uh, and I do feel that the U.S., sec parts of the U.S., pathologize sadness. Uh, and it was mm -hmm. poignant for me, and I made sure to tell Pete and Ronnie this. We had one day where we talked about how we handle girl young adolescent girl depression. And it ran a little in all of our families, and we knew there's a pathologizing of female sadness. 
And a lot of young females are given medications for states that may be normative and healthy. Uh, and so I think the, that was the central victory of the, the movie, was to say, it's all right, it's going to pass. It's even developmentally appropriate, which I think it is, and, uh, and in a sense a good thing. And so uh, that was a radical act of the film um, that only art and film can do. <laughs> Glad they did it. Well, on that note, <laughs> it seems like the perfect place to, uh, uh, to stop. And I'm going to thank you. So I wanted to remind them again of the uh, SAGE uh, lecture tomorrow. What time is it? Uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m. in the psychology building. The, the windowless one. Yes, the windowless uh, <laughs> psychology building. Uh, <laughs> you, you, psych psych uh, 1312, I believe okay. is the room number. All so, right. On the first floor. Perfect. Thank you all. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.